0: And so I like, I like these as a pairing for, for that reason. This book also, Oh God, I lost my train of thought. Um, it's just one of those days. This is going to be a <laughs> journey. Sorry, <Miles>. I know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Whoops. I would say like, Shh. it's not going to get worse from here, but I'm just imagining us recording <laughs> in early September. I know. Like,
0: what? 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 <laughs> what is? What is a book? Either? What was I going to say? Uh... Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. Hey, Chelsea. Hi,
1: Sarah. Is this the first play we've talked about since The Crucible?
0: I think it is. Yeah. And Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams were contemporaries, so feels both appropriate and then also maybe we need to branch out a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe high schools need to
1: branch out a little bit because a big part of why we wanted to talk about A Streetcar Named Desire is it's commonly taught in the classroom, just like The Crucible. So I'm not
0: going to put that on us yet. Okay, fair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited to talk about this one today. This is a play that I have taught just one, one year and many years ago and haven't really revisited since, but I think this was your first time reading it. I'm not- I can't uh, remember. Yeah. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> I know that I've read other Tennessee Williams before in just various theater history classes and stuff like that. And I know that I've seen the film, but I don't think that I- I don't think that I had read it. I mean, I recognized a lot because when you see the film, like it's a pretty true adaptation. So, yeah. And I actually listened to it this time. Oh, cool. How was that? It was really good. So the benefit of listening was, of course, it felt like a performance and it felt like I was getting the stage experience. There was a version on Hoopla. From 1973, it was some. I think it was like a Lincoln Center revival. So it really was like a, a true cast performance, and because it was from the 70s, it felt very of the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the the benefit of that was it felt very theatery, which I love, of course. Uh, the downside is that I didn't get to read the stage directions and the dialogue and get that in with my eyes. So I'll probably be relying on you to comment on more of that. And I mean, just, I did
0: skim, but the stage directions are pretty thorough. Yeah. I was going to ask, so is anyone reading the stage directions in the, okay, well, there are a couple. It was like listening to a play. Yeah. There are a couple of stage directions that I'm going to have to read to you. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. They are very thorough and especially how he describes the characters, which I think that the film version really does a great job of capturing exactly what Tennessee Williams said he wanted from these characters in the stage direction. So that that's pretty cool. That's a great adaptation. But yeah, there's so much in the stage directions here. So um, we can talk a little bit about about that. So, Sarah, I am really,
1: really curious to hear about your experience teaching this, because as I was listening, I was trying to put my teacher hat on and think about how the heck do you bring this into the classroom? I know many people do, and I even know a couple of teachers who love teaching this play, but there is a lot to unpack here, and there are so many content warnings, flashing, bright lights major content warnings. Y'all can take that as a content warning too, because we'll talk about abusive relationships, rape, just horrible Alcoholism, circumstances. Alcoholism,
0: so much in this yeah. play. Yeah. So tell us about your classroom experience. I did not enjoy teaching this play. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, this was part of an inherited curriculum. So it wasn't a, a choice that that I made, which is not to say that the teacher before me made a poor choice. It's just that they made the choice based on what they liked teaching. And then it just didn't really work as well for me. Um, It was also my first year teaching high school that I taught this this play, which, you know, was a lot for me and for the students. (laughs) Um, And it was the first time I had read it. So there's just a lot of firsts. And so maybe if I had kept it in the curriculum and really prioritized making something out of it, it would have gone over well. And I just made the choice that I'd rather swap something else in for the amount of time it kind of took to read through Streetcar because we would read the whole thing out loud, of course, which takes takes a lot of time. One of the reasons I I chose to swap it out was I wasn't quite sure what the point of teaching this play was. And maybe that's something we can return to at the end of our discussion. Like, what I'm not saying there isn't a point to this play, I'm just saying I couldn't access it in a way that helped me get my students to see it. So I'd love to return to that talking with you today. I will say that there are this play is so heavy there are fun parts to perform in the classroom like if you have kids who love acting things out like there are going to be many kids who just want to like scream Stella at the top of their lungs (laughs) in the classroom for a day and like that's that's fun and on the other end of that spectrum the play does allow you to talk about really important things so I taught this at an all-girls school, and I think my class had really good conversations around sexual assault and um, intimate partner abuse that came out of this play. I'm just not sure that for high school, this play was the best way to begin those conversations. So it did help us access some really good things. It still wasn't totally my preferred way to access those topics. I'll also say the film version is a huge hit. (laughs) It's in black and white. The acting is so melodramatic and over the top. And even 17-year-olds of today swoon over shirtless Marlon Brando. (laughs) So that was always fun. So, you know, it was... There were good parts of it, but um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a favorite of mine to teach. And as always, when we do these episodes of cla- like classroom staples, I will be so curious to hear from other teachers about their experiences with this one, too. What grade level was this? This was juniors. Junior year American literature.
1: I think 11th or 12th is probably the most
0: typical time we see this in the high school curriculum. I think it'd be really hard to do with anyone younger. And it's not just the hard topics. It's like, I, I mean, I for me, it was that I wasn't able to really help them see the larger point of this. And that just makes the hard topics even harder to deal with, I think.
1: Let's fit this play a little bit into at least genre context. So I think two ways that we could describe this It's a melodrama, like you said, that (laughs) super over-the-top melodramatic acting. I mean, that's partly because that was the popular style when the film came out, but also this script is a melodrama, meaning the drama is way over the top. The situations are all heightened, and it's not, well, like we said, it's not just one content warning. It's all of the content warnings, and- I, I think part of the hard thing of this play is it almost feels like those are part of this script for shock value mm, mm-hmm. rather than a true portrayal of real people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which feels in line with melodrama to me. And then another way that we can describe it is it's a Southern Gothic. Totally. We have a new Orleans setting. We have a, these sisters who lost their family plantation and we have a class struggle. We have just lots of different things that could qualify this as Southern Gothic and Tennessee Williams, among many other writers of the time, Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor. I mean, all of those Southern Gothic writers, this falls into that category too.
0: Yeah, and I I think we, one of the reasons we picked it for our summer season is it just, it has that sweltering Southern Gothic feel to it. Even though, yes, we, we get pretty lengthy stage, stage directions at times, but there's not a ton of scene setting. It still feels really evocative of place, just the way the characters' dialogue, is unfolding the way the kind of like claustrophobic apartment feels when you're inside it with these characters it has that that feeling of sweltering and it feels yeah like everything's about to boil over both in terms of its southern gothic and its melodramatic vibes and literally blanche is constantly taking
1: super hot baths that are steaming up the whole apartment (laughs) yeah (laughs) And that's like a major point of tension is why is she always in the bathtub taking these hot baths? It's like 100 degrees outside. It's making it hot in the apartment. And it just is one of those small details in the dialogue, like you said, that contributes to this overall atmosphere of heavy tension, that thick humidity of the South and just
0: really evocative of the setting. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's give a little plot summary, and then we'll get into these main characters. So A Streetcar Named Desire is primarily about three characters, Blanche, Stella, and Stanley. Blanche is kind of estranged from her younger sister, Stella. But at the beginning of the play, she shows up with her very large trunk at Stella's apartment doorstep and basically requests to to stay for a while and we know immediately that Blanche is in trouble things aren't going well for her and Stella very much welcomes her in Blanche is not impressed with Stella's living situation Stella and Blanche come from kind of a decaying southern aristocracy And now Stella is married to Stanley, who is solidly in the working class. And then, I mean, I don't know how much we want to go into spoilers here in our initial plot summary, but things really start to boil over. We learn secrets that Blanche has been keeping from Stella, including that she's lost the family home. And that she's been basically let go from her teaching job for reasons that become clear closer to the end of the play. Stella's also keeping things from Blanche. Stella is pregnant and her relationship, while uh, Stella talks about it in these glowing terms, is also abusive. And Stella's husband, Stanley, really eggs on all of this tension. He really is not a fan of Blanche and much of the play is kind of him pushing her to her breaking point. I think that's a great summary and I'm sure that we'll get into
1: spoilers even as we approach talking about the characters because it's just not possible, particularly when we talk about Blanche, to not reveal some of these secrets but I have a feeling, I mean, listeners, if you're tuning in, either this is a great primer before watching the movie, or if you read this in high school, it's fun to revisit. But I don't know that I'm going to go around recommending that everybody read no. a streetcar <laughs> card name, Desire. Agreed. Yeah. We, <laughs> On paper.
0: Yeah.
1: 100% agreed. So I'm going to say spoilers are, are really okay here. But um, I don't know. Should we start with Blanche? Because she emerges i mean we get a little interaction between stella and stanley at the beginning when he's just kind of yelling hey i'm going to the bowling alley bye and then blanche walks in and she gets more of a grand entrance here i think and gets more of the attention on her and she's walking into this situation so automatically our radar is up to sort of I don't know that we would take her position, but we're walking into this situation with her to figure out what's going on. Where are these people living? Who are they? So we're sort of with Blanche as the play opens. And I just, I don't know, gosh, as I was listening to this, I was like, man, the one time we get an English teacher in a classic work (laughs) that a bunch (laughs) of people teach, and it's the worst English teacher ever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Oh, Blanche. Poor Blanche. I mean, she is one of those characters that I think is really hard to write where she's like despicable and pathetic. You do empathize with her at times. And then at other times you just like, can't believe you empathized with her. She's, she's such, she's such a mess. And we don't learn for quite some time about exactly kind of what triggered all of this in Blanche. But yes, she comes walking in. First of all, her name is Blanche DuBois, which she tells us means white woods. And she (laughs) comes wearing this, this white suit. One of the things about Blanche is that she's always kind of dressing up as if she still had the money that she grew up with, which she very much does not. And she puts on a front of kind of traditional feminine purity. And really, so much of her identity is tied up in that performance and that performance geared towards men who she's in constant need of approval and attention from. And everything she does is dramatic. Like when she comes and she sees Stella for the first time, of course, she says Stella's name like, five times. It's just, everything's over the top with her.
1: Coming from an acting perspective, Blanche is exactly the kind of character you want to portray because of those layers. That's what makes it fun because she is performing. So you're performing tenfold. You're performing all of these layers to her and I mean, I guess you could say that about a lot of these characters. A lot of their actions feel very performative for each other or in order to fit who they think they're supposed to be. And so just in terms of, I don't know, the theater geek in me, I as much as she's kind of, frankly, she's annoying on stage because of that, I can imagine why it would be so fun to portray her.
0: Totally. Yeah, she, she is annoying. <laughs> She's annoying on the page. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kind of feigned shyness, a lot of like constantly fishing for compliments, asking people how she looks. She avoids too bright of lighting because she doesn't want people to know how old she is. She refuses to say how old she is. And she is this kind of aging Southern Belle. I mean, I'm she's in her late 20s. She's not old. But mm-hmm. um, as opposed to kind of her, her peak youth when she was in her teens and very desired by all of these wealthy men in this aristocratic social circle, she feels like she has fallen far.
1: And she has. Yes. She to be has. fair. Yes. Yeah, and I think... Something that's interesting, though, is the way that Stella treats her and uh, coddles her or tiptoes around her kind of gives us these hints that she's always been like that. Yeah. Even, Even before she fell from grace or even before she started aging out of her desirability and her flirtatiousness, that she's always really needed an ego boost from compliments. Stella tells Stanley while uh, Blanche is in the bathroom, when she comes out, (laughs) you need to tell her how pretty she is or you need to say something nice about her. She really needs that. And you just get the sense right away that, ooh, something's not right there. And it seems like Stella throughout the play is very protective of Blanche. And it just, you can get the sense that she's always had to be like that with her.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that is one of the clearest indications that Blanche has always been fragile in in this way. Yeah, and
1: when Blanche comes in, we do right away understand she's going to be staying here for a while. Something happened that she needs to come here and she doesn't have anywhere else to go. So we learn that she basically lost the family home. It's kind of murky, you know, she kind of, Stanley is suspicious that she sold it and she's keeping all of the money and, uh, because he's, has this sense of ownership because of his marriage to Stella that, oh, that land should have been ours, but there's, she's kind of, uh, evasive about what exactly happened. She's like, oh, it kind of went away piece by piece. We had to sell it off to me it just sounds like i mean the bank took it and they they needed to to get away from from there it's it's just an all around just crumbling southern wealth situation so anyway she's she's stuck with them in this tiny apartment and she doesn't really fit in to their world um she does meet mitch who's one of stanley's friends and she bats her eyelashes at him, and Stella gets this naive hope that maybe a romance could spark there, but Stanley learns some things about Blanche that make him warn his friend, and it just starts to get more and more tangled from there.
0: I think we're going to just have to get into spoilers now. I think so, too. Just... because there's so only so much we can talk around right. with these with these characters. So once again, if you don't want to know any of these secrets, you know, skip ahead to our pairings. But we really don't feel like we're ruining a player movie for you here. Um, yeah, Stanley, we find out so many secrets of of Blanche's past. One that really bonds her with Mitch and forms this kind of nice moment is which well, it's also a horrifying moment because we learn about Blanche's past, but Blanche and Mitch have both lost a person that they were romantically in love with. And we learned that Blanche was married basically as a teenager. She always calls her former husband a young boy. He's never referred to as a man, always a boy. And we basically learn that Blanche's husband was gay. And when he confessed and told her that, when she found out, Blanche ridiculed him and he committed suicide. And she has been reeling from guilt and shame for that and just missing his companionship as well for years and years. And in trying to fill that void, she is been sleeping with a lot of men and a lot of men who are much too young for her maybe even like young boys and it's just it's this I I don't know the way that all like unfolds throughout the story is so interesting because we get the piece that Blanche confesses to Mitch and then we that's I think when we really like we we hurt for her at the same time as really hurting for her her husband who she who she ridiculed but then the other elements her promiscuity those are revealed by stanley out of kind of malice like it could be a bit that he wants to warn mitch but it seems like more he wants to hurt blanche by exposing her secrets and so I I just, I find the way those two secrets are revealed so, so interesting how one comes from like a place of wanting to connect and maybe seek some sort of, I don't know, forgiveness, even if it's not from the person who she needs forgiveness from. And then the other coming from like revenge and spite.
1: Yeah. And the point of a melodrama, especially a live theater experience is that you're supposed to be on the roller coaster with these characters and you're supposed to really feel these high and low emotions. And I mean, you even get that with the mix of quiet scenes and then you get Stanley screaming and yelling and it's just all part of that emotional ride that Tennessee Williams is taking you on. But yeah, uh, Blanche, she is a, all of these characters, aside from maybe Stella, is probably the easiest to sympathize with, um, but they are, they are rough. <laughs> they put you through the ringer. Like you said, the second that you start to feel sorry for them, you learn something else that makes you disgusted or angry. And yeah, like I said, I think that's just such a touchstone of the melodrama of it all. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about Stella? There's not, like you said, she's maybe the most I don't know. Real. I feel like yeah, (laughs) the hard
1: part with Stella is without Stanley she's not a character. This is very true. (laughs) So we'll probably just have to talk about both of them together because without him she really doesn't have any distinct characteristics to stand on we only see her in relation to her sister and her husband so she's she's more of a plot device in so many ways and i think especially i mean when you watch the film you remember Marlon Brando's performance and you really remember Vivian Lees, I don't know that you really remember Kim Hunter as well.
0: I agree. And again, I think that's intentional. And it is, it's, I remember reading this for the first time after maybe not even having seen the full movie, but of course, knowing Marlon Brando, just screaming Stella at the top, of his lungs and being like who is this blanche like (laughs) i'm Mm -hmm. confused about these characters um can i read you the stage directions where stanley is introduced because this is this is some wild writing (laughs) yes please okay um stanley throws the screen door of the kitchen open and comes in He is of medium height, about 5 feet 8 or 9, and strongly, compactly built. Animal joy in his being is implicit in all his movements and attitudes. Since earliest manhood, the center of his life has been pleasure with women, the giving and taking of it, not with weak indulgence, dependently, but with the power and pride of a richly feathered male bird among hens." (laughs) Branching out from this complete and satisfying center are all the auxiliary channels of his life, such as his hardiness with men, his appreciation of rough humor, his love of a good drink and food and games, his car, his radio, everything that is his, that bears his emblem of the gaudy seed bearer. He sizes women up at a glance with sexual classifications crude images flashing into his mind and determining the way he smiles at them.
1: So we could just tattoo <laughs> toxic masculinity on his forehead. Yes. Poster boy.
0: <laughs> yes. 100%. I mean, those stage directions like it's kind of wild that there's so much specificity written down by Tennessee Williams that if you don't read the script, you don't you don't get Um, so it is an interesting one to read on the page for some of those reasons.
1: That's a great stage description. I I, I love it. I think, so I did read some of these. I think when Blanche was introduced, it said something about her kind of moving like a moth. Yes. There's just, there's a lot for actors to work with here movement
0: wise and, you know embodying the character wise it does and it kind of like makes me wonder what a Tennessee Williams novel would have been like because he's a great writer i mean obviously his dialogue is great but yeah the i mean it's heavy handed but, <laughs> but i i like reading the way he puts words together and the way he can kind of capture characters is is pretty impressive but i i think that that stage direction to me to, I mean, really plants the seed in my mind that in large part, this play is about masculinity and toxic masculinity and the, I don't know, the kind of ripple effects that has on all of the people around an individual. And the play is about more than that but I think because of some of the detail he gives to developing these characters and then to what we learn about Blanche's husband and and his his sexuality and and his eventual suicide like I just I feel that's to me what I keep coming back to in this play is that it's about masculinity in some way. That makes sense. I am thinking of the
1: really over the top interaction that Stanley has with Stella when he comes in and she tells him Blanche lost the country property Mm -hmm. and he is going on and on and on about Napoleonic law. And because I'm the husband, that was mine. And Um, That was supposed to be my property. So, of course, that's why I'm upset about it. And you just get this sense that even in 1947, this was a a really over-the-top portrayal of masculinity. But I also don't think that we can divorce it from the stereotype, the working-class stereotypes Mm. in this play. Yeah, great point. The classism at play here because it very much feels like – and I – I've read a little bit of Tennessee Williams background, but not enough to know know, where exactly he was writing from. Um, But I don't think that he's a Stanley. He's not a blue collar worker. He's writing plays with his friends. (laughs) So um, I just think that the characters are incredibly stereotypical. I think they portray some really damaging classist stereotypes.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. I, I yeah, it's Tennessee Williams. He, I mean, his real name is Thomas Something Williams the Third. Like, yes. <laughs> um, I I think oh, this is so interesting because yeah, you can never divorce like gender and class and race. Which also to point out, there are characters of color in this play and none of them have names. Mm-hmm. So there are issues with that as well. I think I read a lot of Stanley as like Williams' own anxiety about his masculinity and his sexuality. He he was gay and I think struggled with that for not his whole whole life, but on and off. And there's a lot of history of mental illness in his family. His sister, Rose, I think her name was, um, was under psychiatric care from a really terrible doctor, ended up having a lobotomy. And Tennessee Williams cared for her for the remainder of, of his life, gave her um, the royalties to his plays so that she would continue to receive care no matter what happened to him. Anyways, that's kind of a tangent, but you can see how some of that's coming out in this play as oh, well. Totally. But I, I feel like I read Stanley as kind of, a, in some ways, a symbol of like the masculinity that like Williams is both a bit af- afraid of and drawn to uh, at the same time. Like Stella, yes, like Stella is. But, but you can't just. Read him like that and then not bring in those stereotypes that you're talking about as well.
1: Yeah, Stella, she's completely enamored by him. And like they have a lot of sex and it's really clear. Like they are really super attracted to each other. One of the main reasons that she married him is because they have a great sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. So... And she kind of hints at that to Blanche. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, gosh. What's one of the best lines where Blanche is like, he's not a genius, is he? And Stella's like, no, but he's got other qualities, like wink, wink, nudge, (laughs) nudge. And so we have that side of things, whereas, you know, Blanche has this like extremely repressed Sexuality and her sexual desires, she, like, keeps everything hidden, even though we know she is an experienced woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Stella has really embraced her sexuality and is seems happy being, you know, among other people that are okay with that, who don't have the trappings of this high Southern society that are keeping them all buttoned up. But... Stanley is abusive and he's scary. And um, Stella is forced to make excuses for all of this. And so when you're talking about Tennessee Williams really like grappling with his own fears and his own relationship to masculinity and the way that Stanley embodies it, it seems like Stella is the one that all of this gets played out on she's so attracted to that really fierce yes strong masculinity and yet it is so
0: damaging to her yes yeah it it is really i i can see how a lot of people would have a hard time reading or watching this because there there is just the play is not romanticizing stanley's violence but stella mm-hmm. does yeah and you know she talks about how on their wedding night he came home and broke every light bulb in the house. And Blanche was like, weren't you terrified? And she was basically like, no, I I, I forget what word she uses, but she basically says she was turned on by his kind of brutality and his, his shows of, of force. Or even in the stage directions where he's screaming Stella, they say that he's, he's yelling violently. So that like peak quote unquote romantic moment that comes right after he has beat her is also violent, even in his like attempt to make up with her. And she, she responds to that. And so, yeah, I, I think that the, the play is just, I, I still don't know what it's saying about gender, masculinity, sexuality, but it's certainly exploring those questions.
1: We do get a passage Let's see. I think Blanche is explaining Desire. She's talking about a streetcar named Desire. (laughs) Got us here. Literally. And, you know, titles are important. And so I do have to wonder if part of that uh, anxiety and exploration of gender and sexuality is wrapped up under... Desire. Mm -hmm. This exploration of what does it mean to give in to your desire? And is desire dangerous and damaging? It seems like yes.
0: Oh, I I think definitively yes. Like, desire doesn't get any of these characters anywhere good. And the apartment complex that they live in is called the Elysian Fields, which is like the Greek, um, in Greek mythology, that's the afterlife so like literally in the (laughs) opening scene Mm -hmm. blanche is like i wrote a streetcar named desire and ended up at elysian fields and it's like okay we we get (laughs) it (laughs) you wrote this desire and it ended in death um and that uh, that i think is yeah very much and it's that's kind of sad right i and it makes me wonder More about I'd love to read a full biography of Tennessee Williams because I think he's really interesting, but um, more about his his life and his passions and and desires and romances, because this play does not have a positive view of desire (laughs) or maybe at least like the way like um, American society, warps and twists desire.
1: Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And I
1: mean, towards the end, we get some really horrible graphic scenes as Stanley rapes Blanche and, you know, we get sort of the aftermath of that. And I don't know. It is as we're talking more and more, it is hard to sort of divorce these characters from the symbolic and it's hard to divorce their actions from the symbolic as well. And so I have to wonder if even that scene is supposed to symbolize something about Stanley or about Blanche, which is unfortunate because it should never rape should never operate as a symbol. But here we are in a play written in the 1940s. So,
0: yeah, I I think that's a really good point and something that makes this play hard to read and hard to, to teach. Um, Mm -hmm. Just, yeah. How much are we talking about these people as people versus symbols? And I, I think, I think they're both, but after Stanley rapes Blanche, her, her mental health radically declines. Stella doesn't believe her. Or Stella chooses not to believe her. I think Mm. both of those readings are available to us. I I think it's probably more the latter that Stella even says, like, I can't go on living with him if I were to believe Blanche. Mm -hmm. And so it's pretty clear that she's making that choice. And then Blanche is taken to an insane asylum. And even at the end, like, the whole... That whole scene feels so symbolic with Blanche, like, really, like, not wanting to go until a nice, handsome male doctor, like, coaxes her to go with him. And she placidly goes with him. And then we're left with, like, Stella and Stanley and the baby as, like, this picture of an American family. It's just, it's really dark. The end of this play is is deeply depressing.
1: It is. It is really depressing. But... I don't know. So is American consumerism. And when everybody's just, like we said, following their desire to the very end, taking rocket ships to space instead <laughs> of fixing world <laughs> hunger.
0: Yeah. I Okay. Let's. We should get into our pairing soon. I'm really curious what you paired with this. But let's kind of come back to that question of like, what really is the point of this play in your mind and also like do you think this play ought to be in high school classrooms and not in a way of like let's ban it or in the sense of everyone should be teaching this but if it has value for high school students I'm curious what you think it is
1: I think it has more value in a high school theater classroom than a high school English classroom. Mm. Because I think as a stage drama, there is a lot to be learned about theater history and the style of the day. I think, like you said, Tennessee Williams really is a fascinating author to learn about or a playwright to learn about, I should say. Um, but I just I think that the conversations about this can be so much richer when you look at the performances and when you look at the stage directions super carefully under that sort of theater lens. And um, I still think you can have a lot of the same tough conversations or a lot of the same analysis about the darker and um, more terrible aspects of the play. But to me, it just, it feels like, If you want to tackle some of these topics in the English classroom, there are far better texts to do it with. There's a lot of really great YA that deals with abuse, alcoholism, sexual assault um, that students could access so much better than this play. So
0: I, I think that's where I land on it. All right, Chelsea. Well, I'm really curious to hear about your pairings. I struggled a little bit, I think because there wasn't like one theme that I came away from this with or a character that I was like, oh, I have a great pairing for that character. So I don't, I love all of the books that I am pairing with this more than I love A Streetcar Named Desire by far, but they might be a slight stretch for for pairings today. <laughs> I think that's totally
1: fine. Okay, yeah. I okay. kind of just went with like gut feeling yes. for these mm-hmm. pairings. It's I tried not I to overthink it. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to pair a play with novels, first of all, but especially one where we're kind of lukewarm on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm more excited to watch the movie with everyone in Classics Club on Patreon. We'll have a watch along and we'll share more about that later. But Okay, um this first one that I have on my list. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on because I don't know, it was one of those first like gut reaction <laughs> situations for me. I think Luster by Raven Leilani fits well here, mostly because of the tension, the melodrama, and the Three core characters having this really complicated interconnected relationship. So Luster is about Edie and she's in her 20s living in an apartment in Bushwick. And she's just kind of, I don't know, working her nine to five, making some not so great choices in her dating life and so she meets Eric who has a family in New Jersey and he tells her hey I am married he's really upfront about it right away but he says I have an open marriage and so she's okay with this so Edie's like okay I'm down but through just a weird series of events like This book made me feel icky. I'm not going to lie, but it is kind of a page turner and the writing's really good. Um, Through a series of events, Edie actually ends up living with Eric in his home, where his wife also lives and knows what's going on, and their daughter. And it is just, that's, that's the plot. I mean, there isn't a, ton of other stuff that really happens. It is just the complicated interactions between these people figuring out what exactly does each character want here in this situation. And just the, I think the, it gave me a similar feeling listening to Streetcar, just like that. You want to know what happens. You're like, okay, this is a little over the top, (laughs) but uh, the writing is really good. And it's, tense and you want to see that through to the end. So I, it's not a pairing that I would recommend, um, replacing Streetcar with in the classroom at all. It's just a contemporary novel that to me strikes some of the same notes and just has sort of that same triangular relationship. So Luster by Raven Leilani is my first pairing.
0: I think that's a great pairing. And I think Our instincts took us to similar places with these pairings. (laughs) Um, I just also want to echo how good the writing is in Lester. It is. It's just so good. I felt the same way. Like I didn't love reading the story, but I loved the writing and what she could do on the page. And I cannot wait to read what she writes next. Um, my first pairing is Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, and same thing. It just that claustrophobic, melodramatic feel really reminded me of of Streetcar. And this is another one where this is not a classroom replacement. None of mine are going to be classroom replacements. So good luck with that to all of you English teachers so sorry Um, but this one is about it's Sally Rooney it's set in in Ireland it's about two friends Francis and Bobby uh, both 21 ish uh, both women in their young 20s and they were in a relationship in high school but now they are just friends and writing partners, they they write and perform their poetry together, and they they get involved in the lives of a married. This is a great pairing for Lester. This is a lot like Lester. <laughs> they get involved with a married couple, uh, Melissa and and Nick, and Bobby is really drawn towards Melissa as a mentor. Francis feels like. She wants Melissa to be as interested in her as she is in Bobby, and that doesn't happen. And so Francis kind of gets closer with Melissa's husband, Nick, and then just all of these relationships become entangled and complicated. And the tension builds throughout as although Sally Rooney is not melodramatic, it's subdued but you feel that sense of of tension and worry for the the characters and and just wondering what is going to happen. I think the other reason I like this pairing is I think Sally Rooney writes really good dialogue and a lot of theme and character is revealed in her, her dialogue. And so even though she's not writing plays, there is that similar element to a play where you're just learning so much about the characters through these conversations as the title of the book suggests so Sally Rooney was a like world champion debater before she started writing novels and so you can just feel the snappiness of her of her dialogue and how clearly she conveys all of her her themes and points so yeah i i really really like this one i, I actually prefer it to normal people. I know normal people is the bigger one. So if you liked normal people or maybe you didn't, but you thought you want to give Sally Rooney another try. Conversations with friends by Sally Rooney is my first pairing.
1: My next pairing, there's a possibility that this one could be used in the classroom, but it would really depend on your students. And of course, everything's always dependent on on your students. But I think Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison would be a good pairing here. This is, I think we could almost call it a contemporary or a modern classic. It's as old as I am, so I don't know how I feel about that. But <laughs> it takes place in South Carolina and setting is really strong in this, but we Zoom in on the Boatwright family, and this is a tight-knit family. They are rough, drinking, working-class men who shoot at each other's trucks and got married really young, and it just very much sounds like Stella and Stanley's general neighborhood or their friends or their, their people. Um, And Ruth Ann Boatwright is known as Bone. That's her nickname. And she is a bastard in this family. And she's really observational. But um, her stepfather is abusive towards her. And this is just creates this major tension between Bone and her mother and the stepfather. And I think that that triangular relationship also is a good connection point for Streetcar here. So we have this story, it's ratcheting up the tension, and we know something bad is gonna happen, Um, but we also have that sort of three-person relationship going on. Um, Like Streetcar, this has all of the content warnings, so approach it carefully but I I think it is an example of a book that maybe deals with some of the class and gender and abuse and alcoholism issues a little bit better than A Streetcar Named Desire or in a different way. So Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison. I think that that one would be a great pairing. And it's just, it's a, Good backlist title if you're looking for some of those 90s, early 2000s books that you might have missed. Bastard Out of Carolina is one of those. Sarah, what is your next pairing?
0: My next pairing is Real Life by Brandon Taylor. So, much like you, I was thinking about books that ask similar questions about gender, class, sex, and sexuality. And I think Real Life by Brandon Taylor is exploring a lot of the same things Tennessee Williams was in, of course, a much, much more modern way. Uh, Real Life is about a graduate student named Wallace. He is the only Black student in his cohort at this Midwestern school that he is at, and he comes from a class tier that is different from most of his counterparts there. And that kind of makes him, both of those factors make him a bit of an outsider, although he also, I think, is an outsider because of his gentleness and introspection and just reservedness. And so he is a character who in many ways, I think, defies a lot of stereotypically masculine traits. He is drawn to another character in his his cohort who much more embodies a lot of those toxic masculine traits that we see in a character like like Stanley, although I think he's more complex. And they have this weekend together that just really mm, just shakes Wallace and and shapes him. And there are a lot of trigger warnings in this book as well. But I just think that it does a really fantastic job of exploring gender and identity and just the intersections of Wallace's identity in a in a way that I think Tennessee Williams was like starting to inch towards, but like maybe just we weren't there yet in the 1940s to explore it in, in the same way. This book also has a great sense of place, like a streetcar named Desire. And once again, I, I don't know why I keep returning to the phrase claustrophobic. And I think that just is one of the big um feelings I get from streetcar, both because of the New Orleans humid humidity and the two-bedroom apartment. And I think grad school is another place of that sense of claustrophobia where you see the same people every day. And you have one major thing in common, but you might not have anything else in common. And there's just a lot of, of tensions there. And so, um, yeah, I, I really liked real life. And I, I think real life conversations with friends and luster are all real similar books and feels. And I it's interesting I wouldn't have read any of those three and thought, oh, this really reminds me of A Streetcar Named Desire but rereading Streetcar, all three of those books came so to mind. And so I I think it's just interesting that we were both in the same headspace when we were picking these pairings. So that is Real Life by Brandon Taylor.
1: We said that it was going to be so hard to pair books with this, but we're nailing it, Sarah. <laughs> I know. I
0: Well, I think it's really interesting that like these kind of like millennial explorations of gender and identity feel so like connected to this play. And maybe that's, you know, a reason this play has stayed prominent in whatever way it it has is that it still speaks to us (laughs) and on a certain level. It seems like one
1: of those classics that's like the great Gatsby that's just part of the American psyche at this point.
0: Yeah, even if you've never read it or seen it, like there's just something about it that exists in the way we tell stories. So along with strong settings, sort of
1: that claustrophobic atmosphere, that family tensions, my next pairing, I think, fits in with all of that. I'm glad we went in the same direction with these because I do think you don't have to enjoy a streetcar in order to enjoy stories like that. So another one is The Great Alone by Kristen Hannah, And this is a well-loved book. It takes place in Alaska in the 1970s. And Ernst Albright is a former prisoner of war. He fought in Vietnam and he has horrible PTSD. And so he comes home and he is a completely different person and he loses another job mostly because of his PTSD and all of its impacts on his life. And so he decides, okay, I'm moving the entire family out to Alaska and we're just going to go off the grid. So this story mostly focuses on his 13 year old daughter And she is just trying to survive at home. Her parents have a really tumultuous relationship, of course, because of Ernst's PTSD and the way that he takes it out on the family. And Alaska seems like it'll be the perfect escape for her. It's wild. It's different. They find this really great community. But winter is dark in Alaska. And her father's mental state does not is not aided by that situation. And so literally, as they are snowed in in their small cabin, things get dangerous and tensions ratchet up. So that just to me has the same sort of evocative atmosphere of a streetcar named desire, similar themes with, the toxic masculinity and this sort of, um, pillar of the fan, this male pillar of the family and everyone revolving around him and trying to figure out how do we handle this man's anger. And of course it's just beautifully descriptive as well. So if you like books with a strong setting and beautiful writing, the great alone by Kristen Hanna feels like it fits
0: right here. That's a great pick. My last pairing I actually just talked about on our Best Books of the Year So Far episode. It is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. And I was just thinking about books that are doing really interesting things with the way they explore gender and sexuality and Detransition Baby is at the top of my list right now of, of books that are touching on those questions with a lot of nuance and a lot of heart. This book also kind of has a, a triangle, not a love triangle, but three three characters who we're following, whose relationships with each other are complicated and, and ongoing in. Uh, really interesting ways. Um, unlike the characters in Streetcar, you will fall madly in love with the characters in Detransition Baby and just never want to leave them. You'll want Tori Peters to continue writing their stories so you can stay with them. <laughs> um, but like the characters in, in Streetcar, they they make bad mistakes that hurt each other. Um and you kind of feel this tug and pull as you you're constantly rooting for them, but you're also just, you know, wishing that that sometimes they hadn't just said what they said. Um it is a book about Reese, who is a transgender woman who wants desperately to have a child. Reese's ex Ames, who had been living with Reese as Amy and then detransitioned to live as a man Ames Ames starts seeing Katrina and he gets Katrina pregnant and Katrina has to decide if she's going to keep this baby and there Ames is interested in perhaps raising the baby as um with Reese so the three of them all all together and That question is kind of explored both through the present timeline where we see Katrina's pregnancy um, followed through, and then we see all three of the characters' past lives as well and kind of how they ended up where they are. Not only is this novel asking really interesting questions and saying really interesting things about gender and masculinity and toxic masculinity and femininity, it also does explore the relationship between sex and violence and there are characters in this book who similar to Stella feel kind of a sexual gratification around violence and I think it's really explored in a very nuanced way much more so than than streetcar but that also came to mind for me as I was rereading this one so I just loved that book so much I I hope I, I I mean it's been all over it's been getting nominated it doesn't need me to gush about it but I will and I I hope some people pick it up that is detransition Baby by Tori Peters
1: I love that pairing and I'm excited to talk about our picks of the week because we have some fun links. Um, I have a podcast episode to recommend, I think, oh, I'm almost positive. I've mentioned the, you must remember this podcast before Karina Longworth, the host is basically a scholar of old Hollywood and she very thoroughly researches each season that she puts out. There is a season on the blacklist of Hollywood and, um, Elia Kazan who directed Streetcar when it first opened in theaters in 1947 and the film version with Marlon Brando had a huge part in this blacklist time period. And just this episode on him specifically mentions Streetcar, mentions Marlon Brando. And I also just think gives a nice peek into some context for Tennessee Williams' work and just what kind of environment it was entering into. We obviously talked a lot about the Red Scare and sort of the um, 1950s atmosphere of Arthur Miller writing The Crucible on that episode. Um, But like we said, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller were contemporaries, and so they were writing in a similar time period. And this film was produced in a similar time period. So just for extra historical context and... If you are a fan of black and white movies, you must remember this, that specific podcast episode will be linked in our show notes.
0: I love that. All right. My pick of the week is a virtual museum exhibit. So the Morgan Library and Museum, I mean, they in New York, they have fantastic exhibits on authors and genres and specific books and time periods all the time. And I didn't know until fairly recently that they make all of those available virtually on their website. So there is a great one called Tennessee Williams, No Refuge But Writing. And there's a like super short, less than five minutes, little documentary introduction to Tennessee Williams as a writer and a person. And then just all of these images and um, stories about his life. And so this exhibit includes like the original playbills for some of his, his plays photos of the original casts of various of his plays, some of his own annotated scripts, uh, some of his drawings and sketches. It's really cool. So it's kind of a fun way to learn a little bit more about an author rather than just reading a full biography or reading the Wikipedia page, which is totally acceptable too. Um, But yeah, it's great. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes as well.
1: Oh, I'm going to check
0: that out. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it.
1: Thank you so much for listening to us talk about A Streetcar Named Desire, everyone. We really hope that you enjoy our pairings today, and we can't wait to hear what you think of them. A big way that you can keep spreading the word about the Novel Pairings podcast and supporting us is by just telling your friends, your social media followers to listen, and sending them a link or writing a review on Apple Podcasts, because that boosts us in the podcast charts. And if you feel like, well, I need some bookish friends. I don't have people that I can text about novel pairings. <laughs> we have people for you. Join us in Classics Club where you get live and recorded classes, bonus episodes, and book club meetings with us and our lovely patrons. You can go to patreon.com slash novel to join that Classics Club community. And we would love to have you there. You can also join us at novelpairings.substack.com for a weekly newsletter where we
0: share extra little tidbits about the classic that we're discussing that week. We can't wait to hear all about your experience reading or watching A Streetcar Named Desire. If you review the book, be sure to tag us on Instagram at novelpairingspod so we can see and share that. We also love to see when and where you're listening to our episodes, so screenshot this right now and share in your Instagram stories. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with another TBR Toppling episode. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything.